Every time someone gives a Dharma talk, I have to think, is there some way to, to inspire, to elevate, to encourage, to appreciate everyone in the room and people who are practicing? The Dharma is never about, I know something, and if you knew what I knew, then you would be whatever. The Dharma is always about personal investigation, personal experience, to know what durian tastes like for yourself. There's no other way. So that's the fundamental intention for all Dharma talks. Also to do our best to express a certain confidence and faith in the path. Now it has taken a lifetime, a lifetime for all of us to arrive right here. Perhaps many lifetimes. So welcome. Every single step that you took, every single inch of the path was important, was necessary. And the fact that you are right here, right now, having gone through all of the adventures and the treks and the disappointments and the loves and the failures and the achievements, the fact that we've all arrived right here, right now, is kind of a miracle. Every minute has been important. All the long days, the dark nights, painful legs, good meals, ease, comfort, it's all been important in order to arrive right here. Now, if we look carefully at what has motivated humankind, I can't speak for each person, but I can certainly speak for myself, and there's some common denominators here. What is it that has kept us on that path, that has kept us taking step after step after step? One of, one of the obvious answers is that life is like an, like an escalator. You know, it just keeps going. You're standing there and it just keeps moving, like a moving walkway. But on that walkway, we all are making choices. Obvious. And we all do our very, 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 very best to make the best choice, given how we see the world, given our circumstances. And we choose whatever we think is going to make us happier to feel good. We think success, whatever that means, will make me feel good. If I get people to love me, it'll make me feel good. If I get, if I'm generous, it'll make me feel good. If I am polite and people are polite to me, it makes me feel good. I dress for success feel good. If I am 
righteous and do all the PC things. I feel that's important, and I'm doing them. I feel good. And we get lots of advice, lots of advice here, you know, all the Dharma talks and all the encouragement words and all the individual and group sansans, lots and lots and lots of views are sprinkled around. And which do we take? We pick up the ones we think, that's going to be an advantage to me. That's, that's going to further my path. We take the one we think will give us the most satisfaction. Given what we understand. Given how we're looking at the world and our particular circumstances. Now all of the Buddhas and all of the wise ancestors and all the bodhisattvas made the same choices. They too were driven by the desire for satisfaction. Call it liberation, call it whatever you want to call it. Why else would people do? They think there's going to be some benefit, and that benefit is going to be good. Part of Dogen Zenji's Gyoji Shito did Zazen on a large rock where he had a thatched hut. He sat continuously without sleeping day and night. Although he did not ignore work, he did not fail to do Zazen throughout the day. Nowadays, the descendants of his teacher, Queen Yuan, are spread throughout China, benefiting humans and devas. This is due to the great determination and solid continuous practice of Shito. Why would someone spend all day sitting on a large rock, or all night sitting on a large rock? What is, there's got to be a motivation. And we talk over and over and over again about greed is one of the three poisons. I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. So what is the fuel? Same fuel that we have. When Dao Zhen, who would later become Zen master Da Yi, the fourth Chinese ancestor, was 14, he met Sing Khan, the third Chinese ancestor, who was the one who uh, purportedly wrote the uh, abiding faith and mind, the verses on the faith mind that we chant sometimes. He then labored for nine years. After inheriting the authentic teaching of Buddha ancestors, Dao Xin kept his mind gathered and did not sleep with his side on the mat for almost 60 years. In his guidance, he did not discriminate between enemies and friends, and his virtue prevailed among humans and devas. So the aspiration to be satisfied is, in a way, underlies all of us. For ill, we make the choices we think are going to make us feel better. If we're restless in bed, we try to find the position that's going to make us feel better. If we're at a crossroads in our life and we're debating this way and that way, we're going to choose the one we think has the most advantages. 
regardless of what we're feeling, rage, joy, dep depression, we always do our best. And everyone's like this. The Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, hunters, politicians, doctors, nurses, spiritual practitioners. And many times, kind and generous deeds and charity and things like that are all motivated by the desire to feel good. Self-interest. I'll give so that I get. So we are all the same. And the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas are all the same. And when we're talking to any one person, you know a couple of things. It doesn't matter what their background is or where they are. First is they have had challenges and difficulties in their life. And secondly, they've endeavored to do the best thing. To make the most advantage. Now, most people assume that there are certain things that will, are inherently advantageous. And so they choose more power, more money, more internet access, more health care, better food, winning an election. And they feel like all these things, the more of them I get and the more easy access I have to them, then the more satisfied I'll be, the happier I'll be. After World War II, a sailor was cast adrift after his ship sank. And he was on a boat for 21 days, nothing to eat or drink. And after he was recovered, uh, rescued, he said, what did you learn? And he said, oh, if I just had food and drink for the rest of my life, I'd be totally happy. We all grasp at whatever we think is going to make it work. Every teenager goes through a phase trying to convince their parents to get them something. And they're saying, oh, mommy, mommy, get me this, and I will never ask for another thing as long as I live. Give me what I want, and I'll be satisfied. That's the way the world is, runs. Give me what I want, and I think I'll be satisfied. Now, sometimes the want is very small and very self-centered, and sometimes the want is kind of much more expansive. But that fuel of my happiness, my satisfaction, my peace depends on whatever. Here's a story from Anthony DeMello. He says, it's like the tramp in London who is settling in for the night. He'd hardly been able to get a crust of bread to eat. Then he reaches this embankment on the River Thames, and there is a slight drizzle. So he huddled in his old, tattered cloak. He was about to go to sleep when suddenly a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce pulls up. Out of the car steps a beautiful young lady who says to him, My poor man, are you planning on spending the night here on this embankment? 
And the tramp says, yes. She says, I won't have it. You're coming to my house and you're going to spend a comfortable night and you're going to get a good dinner. And she insists that he get into his car. Well, they ride out of London and get to a place where she has a sprawling mansion with large grounds and they're ushered in by the butler to whom she says, James, please make sure that he's put in the servants' quarters and treated well, which is what James does. Young woman undressed for bed and suddenly she remembers she has this guest. So she slips on something and goes down to the corridor, to the ser- goes down the corridor to the servants' quarters. She sees a little chink of, chink of light from the room where the tramp was put up. She taps lightly on the door, opens it, and finds the person awake. She says, what's the trouble, my good man? Didn't you get a decent meal? He says, never had a better meal in my life, lady. Are you warm enough? Yes, a lovely warm bed. Then she says, well, maybe you need a little company. Why don't you move over a bit? And as she comes closer to him and he moves over, he falls right into the river. I'll let that sink in for a moment. We have a fantasy, a dream, a dream, marvelous dream, all these wonderful things, and then suddenly reality hits us. Suddenly, now there is a difference between an assembly worker, a scientist, somebody's unemployed, somebody's in spiritual practice. They all have the same fundamental desire as I was talking about. They're all in the same boat. But according to our understanding, they make different choices. And those different choices, still with the same motivation, end up with very different outcomes. Given our particular circumstances and intelligence and the good background that we come from or not good background we come from. If mice are put in a maze and at the end of one of the corridors is cheese and they learn where that cheese is and then the cheese is taken away, well, the mice quickly learn not to go down that corridor. But we humans, because we have an idea, the cheese is down that corridor, it should be down that corridor, it ought to be down that corridor, we keep going down the empty corridor over and over and over again. It should work, it should work, it should work. This should be the way things go. And we convince ourselves that that's the way the world should work. The cheese should be there. Or else we still think the cheese should be there and we finally give up. So how to be free how to live in this world which can be like an endless rat race or like a mule with a carrot out front, always reaching, always trying to get the carrot. And of course, society supports 
you know, carrots, carrot, carrot brandishing a lot. Because the more deluded we are, the more other people, money make, other people can make, or the more power they can have. And so, in a way, it behooves them to have us be driven by these aspirations. I mean, just think about it, if you want to, what it takes to get people interested in buying some new product. You know, there's a new widget, a new thing, and you have to convince people that you get this thing and suddenly your life will be better, it'll be easier, it'll be more pleasant, you'll have more fun, you'll, you know. And then once you ignite some desire for something better, then perhaps it will take off. Chosen said yesterday, you may be hoping for certain kinds of results from practice. Dramatic openings, falling into emptiness, feeling waves of love for all creation, and sometimes things like those are experienced. But our real practice is to shift from the carrot to the boat. To shift, to investigate the boat that we're riding in, to investigate this particular body, this body, one mind, one body, one boat, one vehicle, this boat, this vehicle, this body that has taken every single step, every single step on the path for a whole lifetime. To really get to know what are we traveling with? When we stop and look, it's actually quite inclusive. So what's the option? Here's another story from Anthony DeMello. There's a story about Ramirez. He is old and living up there in his castle on a hill. And he looks out the window. He's in bed and paralyzed. And he sees his enemy, old as the enemy is, leaning on a cane. He's climbing up the hill slowly and painfully. It takes him about two and a half hours to get up the hill. There's nothing Ramirez can do because the servants have a day off. So his enemy comes in the door, comes straight to the bedroom, puts his hand inside his cloak and pulls out a gun. He says, ah, at last, Ramirez, we're going to settle scores. Ramirez tries his level best to talk him out of it. He says, come on, Borgia, you can't do that. You know I'm no longer the man who ill-treated you as a youngster years ago. You're no longer that youngster. Come off it. Oh, no, says his enemy. Your sweet words aren't going to deter me from this divine mission of mine. It's revenge I want, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Ramirez says, but there is. What? I can wake up. Waking up out of the dream. And suddenly what seemed like a nightmare is not. We have to wake up to the carrot-seeking mind and wake up and begin looking at the boat, the donkey, that is following that carrot. We have to begin 
looking for desire. We don't have to, but we can. Look for desire and satisfaction in right where we are instead of somewhere, something. We can begin to find the satisfaction that all of us seek and all beings seek in what we already have. Now, people, we've heard all this kind of thing many times. How do we wake up, though? So, the way we wake up is we fail. We're obstructed. We lose our jobs. We get who or what we thought we always wanted. And then we discover that we're still unhappy. And the way society goes is, well, okay, let's plug something else in there and keep them moving on the wheel. But waking up is to wake up and say, wait, wait. Let me look right here at this boat, this donkey, this. Let me pay attention right here. All those things that happen are just saying, wake up, it's not here, it's not here. Rumi has a poem where he talks about being beaten by robbers. And he says, every time that happens, I always learn that I do not want what they want. So we have to be able to sit down in our practice and to look past our ideas of how we in the world should be. As Chosen said, look beyond appearances. There is no explanation that you can give that would explain away all the hunger and despair and torture and destruction in the world. Just the way it is. Look at the past. It's all happened. Over and over and over again. But if we look carefully, then we begin to see that, in a way, we are the problem. It's obvious if we're in a foul mood or if we're in a depressed mood or we're really unhappy. We can live in a glorious place. We can see beautiful Mount Hood. And we're completely indifferent to it. It looks gray and hopeless. But with a bright, open mind, suddenly the very same landscape, the very same mountain is vivid. Amazing. This waking up begins, as Chosen has been saying, with the first foundation of mindfulness. First foundation. We already have it. And the first foundation... This experience, right here, if we go inside experience, it actually has no shape. Does heat have a shape? Does weight have a shape? Does tingling have a shape? We go inside this experience right here and feel the place that we say is the ground, 
We feel the tingling and the weight and the sensation, the temperature and the movement. I always think of the, the first foundation as like a blob, an amorphous blob that is kind of moving and shifting and kind of goes up and down, in and out. But it's like somebody who is slated for execution and suddenly they get a reprieve and they're just so happy they're alive. They're so happy that they have life. And that first foundation of mindfulness is life. The isness of life. And I always talk about the second foundation being the flavoring. The color, you know, paint the blob pink with blue stripes, just the flavor of it. Make it taste like cardamom and black pepper. But it's right here at this foundation is where we have the opportunity to actually wake up. Because it's already here. It's what we have. It has taken us every single step of the path. It's our opportunity to awaken. Now, my experience is you try to look at this foundation. So there is a, a, you know, the mind kind of puts a shape to things. So you have a hand. If you go inside the hand, there's tingling and there's movement. And there's, but it's not until the eye looks at it and the mind kind of processes it and says, oh, that's shaped like a hand. So before the mind does anything, that's what I'm talking about, about the, the shapeless nature of things. And when and you look at the shapeless nature, you look at the, this first foundation of isness, this first foundation of, of weight, seeming solidity, this first foundation of, of movement, this first foundation of support. When I look at it, I find that it goes in and out of focus. It kind of doesn't really sit still. It's blurry. And the flavor keeps changing too, you know. Sometimes it's nice and bright and pink and sometimes it's murky and gray. And I always think that just like changing the lens on a camera. You know, the camera is sort of zooming in and zooming out and trying to get focused and it's kind of wandering around. Well, when we're looking at this first foundation or the camera is doing that, the operator, so to speak, that is viewing it, that is aware, is what is vital to recognize. And of course, it is not a thing. The Heikuroku was chosen with quoting yesterday, said, our practice uncovers what was already present before we were born, before our ancestors were born. The human race and all species emerge from it, never absent. So we're watching the first foundation here, we're seeing it, and it is exists in a background or a background space. Otherwise it wouldn't have shape, otherwise it wouldn't have form because there's a place of differentiation. We look at it. 
never absent. It has walked us every step of the path, never absent. We tend to not look very carefully at it, though. So we can start one of the practices, a traditional practice, which is not, I'm not suggesting this retreat, but it does, it does sometimes is helpful along these same lines, is the practice of, well, it's not that. So you begin looking at, at okay, here are leaves in the tree. Well, that which is aware is not that. Well, here is the floor. Well, that which is aware is not that. And we kind of use a process of negation. Now, there are other views. I'm, I'm, I realize I'm, I'm giving one particular view here. But we, we take a process of investigation. What am I? What am I? What is it that's aware? What is it that's aware? And everything that is changing and moving and flowing through, that's not the awareness. Everybody frequently, not everyone, many people frequently, this time of a session say, I am tired. I am tired. And then you start doing this and you think, is my nose tired? Are my ears tired? Are my jaw, is my jaw tired? How about the front part of my neck, is that tired? Where is the tiredness located? Is it my right pectoral muscle or my left trapezius? Where is this tiredness thing located? And we subtract and subtract and subtract and subtract and subtract things that are not tired and see what's left. What's left? Rather than the story that we made up, that we put it all together, we made it into a little package, and we said the package is, I am this way, I am this, I am this, I am that. We, we chant the Tanha Sutta I talked about a couple of days ago. The Taha Sutta says that the entangling vines of suffering are the very conception, I am this. I am this because. Take it apart. Deconstruct it. What's left? In a way, I think this kind of practice is, um, expands our capacity for tolerance. Tolerance internally and externally. When things are, seem intolerable inside, there's something that's really hard to feel, and we do this investigation, then our, our capacity for tolerating our own life actually increases. So the great ancestors in our lineage, ones we were just talking about, they had great tolerance. They had great tolerance and they had a great aspiration for satisfaction. And they said, I want to be satisfied right here. I want to find the satisfaction that's right here. I want to investigate I want to look into this experience itself and watch where it bubbles up from. Isn't that amazing? 
that we have a foundation, that we have a body, that we have some... We'll look right there at that place of generosity. And we, of course, see there is no owner. It's just being given. A gift without a giver. Awakening is just waking up to what's already here and to look carefully and more intimately through the surface. And if we can look down in that way and see the empty bottom, we are nothing but awareness floating in space, no boundary. Or we can open ourselves and stop paying attention to our little bundle of, and pay attention to the world and other people and manifestation of this life. And as we walk through the world with less and less fear, as we walk through the world with a clearer and clearer mind, as we walk through the world settled in this foundation which is always present, always reliable, settled in that, then people and things will call to us. There are things that we need to do. And we bring the peace of inclusive awareness knowing that we all, human beings and animals, want the same thing. And we bring the clear mind and open heart of practice and respond as best we're able. The particular Dharma piece is that each of us has to wake up by ourselves. Nobody else can wake us up, just like each of us has to chew our own food. And so the particular Dharma piece is, can we encourage, inspire, goad? Uh, can we put out the hope of, can we offer a path, can we present the possibility of waking up and say, yes, it is possible. Yes, there is a path, an ancient path that has been traveled. Yes, I will encourage you and support you as you walk on that path. And yes, you can find satisfaction at ever deeper levels. And yes, from that foundation that you recognize yourself, you can then support everyone you come in contact with. So the particular way that we, we in, the, in the particular Dharma aspect of the path, the way we try to support people is, is this, this way, 
Yes, 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 yes. See for yourself. Wake up, wake up. And then do what you can do to help others. That's simple.